This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The select committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol subpoenaed four of President Donald J. Trump's closest advisors on Thursday, ramping up its scrutiny of what the former president was doing before and during the deadly riot. NBC News reports uh, in some breaking news just moments ago, the select committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has issued subpoenas to four of Donald Trump's closest aides and associates, all of whom were working with him in the days leading up to the insurrection. The subpoenas, the first the panel has issued, seeks information from Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff, from Dan Scavino Jr., who was a deputy chief of staff, from Stephen K. Bannon, Mr. Trump's former advisor, and Kash Patel, the former Pentagon chief of staff. The information gleaned from these subpoenas in front of the harsh glare of cameras and the American public could prove to be a turning point in what has been, up until now, a largely toothless investigation. So this is really a a game-changer moment. This is a moment where all the talking really comes into into real focus here because these individuals have said that they likely are going to try to have executive privilege and try to claim executive privilege. But these letters really state how serious this just got. This is This is going to be a political showdown to end all political showdowns because you can expect each one of these individuals to fight. But this committee clearly is not playing around. They they, they know exactly what they want to get out of these individuals. The committee is demanding that the four men turn over documents by October 7th and submit to depositions the following week. The select committee is investigating the facts, circumstances, and causes of the January 6th attack and issues relating to the peaceful transfer of power in order to identify and evaluate lessons learned and to recommend to the House and its relevant committees corrective laws, policies, procedures, rules, or regulations. Mississippi Democratic Representative Benny Thompson, chairman of the committee, wrote in a statement announcing the subpoenas. And this really illustrates the aggressive mandate that this committee believes it has to investigate all the events of January 6th, as well as everything leading up to it. The second part is key because they want to stitch together a timeline, a version of events about what happened so this can never happen again. Now, as Yamish points out, these are all individuals close to the former president and who had a lot of say into the events that led up to January 6th and the president's attempts to decertify and try to overturn the 2020 election, which we should, of course, note that he lost fair and square. In letters transmitting the orders, the committee said it was seeking information about the former president's actions in the run-up to and during the riot. Bannon fucking reportedly communicated with Trump on December 30th and urged him to focus his efforts on January 6th, the committee said. He also was present at a meeting at the Willard Hotel the day before the violence when plans were discussed to try to overturn the results of the election the next day, the committee stated. He was quoted as saying, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. We need to kill the Biden presidency in the crib. That was the phrase based on our reporting in that conversation. Yeah, because of his legitimacy. Just let this go what this illegitimate regime is doing. It killed itself, okay? But we told you from the very beginning, just expose it. Just expose it, never back down, never give up, and this thing will implode. Steve Bannon, he's back. This one's also really interesting. What they're focusing here is a meeting at the Willard Hotel in D.C. on January 5th, the day before, during an effort to persuade members of Congress to block the certification of the election the next day. So again, 
What went into the planning here? What was the intent? There was reporting that Steve Bannon in a January 5th War Council meeting with Giuliani, Trump and others said, it's time to kill the Biden presidency in the crib. Joy, if that doesn't earn him a marquee spot on the inevitable seditious conspiracy indictment, I contend is supported by the evidence, I don't know what does. Former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was involved in the planning of efforts to subvert the results of the election, the committee asserted. In Trump's final weeks in office, he repeatedly pushed the Justice Department to investigate unfounded conspiracy theories about the 2020 presidential election, according to emails provided to Congress. Meadows was also in communication with organizers of the rally on January 6th that preceded the violence, including Amy Kramer of Women for America First, the committee said. Former chief of staff to former president Donald Trump, obvious pick. He was by the president's side during the lead up and during January 6th. The committee's going to want to know every single thing that happened that day, every conversation, every phone call. That's what they're going to ask him. Dan Scavino, Donald Trump's former golf caddy turned social media czar and deputy chief of staff, was in contact with Trump and others who planned the rallies that preceded the violence on January 6th and met with Mr. Trump on January 5th to discuss how to persuade members of Congress not to certify the election for President Biden, the committee said. Scavino promoted the January 6th march for Trump on Twitter, encouraging people to be a part of history. Records indicate that Mr. Scavino was tweeting messages from the White House on January 6th, according to the panel. Vino. Now, he was the communications director in the White House. And what's interesting here is they're focusing not only on what happened on January 6th, he was there, but also the communication strategy of former president and his supporters leading up to the events on January 6th. They want to know, was this pre-planned? Did they know this was coming? He's also the tweet master, right? So exactly. They, they want to know what his tweets were, what they were designed to do in the days up to January. Tweeting away, doing those videos, that kind of thing. Cash Patel, the controversial Trump stooge, was serving as chief of staff to acting secretary of defense Christopher Miller during the attack after Trump appointed him to replace Mark T. Esper as the top Pentagon official. According to documents provided by the Defense Department and published accounts, Patel was involved in discussions among senior Pentagon officials before and during the attack regarding security at the Capitol. Patel also was reportedly in constant contact with Mr. Meadows the day of the assault, the committee said. The committee said it was scrutinizing reporting that the former president attempted to install Mr. Patel as deputy director of the CIA in early December, a plan abandoned after Gina Haspel, the director at the time, threatened to resign. Cash Patel, he's a Pentagon official at the Department of Defense, and they want to know about his involvement in discussions with senior defense officials regarding planning for security at the Capitol on January 6th. The subpoenas come as the committee has demanded detailed records about Mr. Trump's every movement and meeting on the day of the assault in request to federal agencies that suggested it was focusing on any involvement the former president might have had in the attack's planning or execution. These subpoenas indicate that the panel has stopped fucking around and is moving aggressively on its investigation without pausing to negotiate with key witnesses who could furnish important information. Those who fail to appear or more importantly lie to the committee could be subject to criminal prosecution. We do have tools that we didn't have uh, in the last administration in that 
We can also hold people in criminal contempt and make a referral to the Justice Department. Now, during the Trump years, when you had people like Bill Barr running the Justice Department, uh, he wasn't about to enforce the law against the President of the United States, uh, even when people were violating the law. Uh, Bill Barr would do anything, essentially, uh, up until the very end, apparently, that the President wanted. Uh, but now that we have a very different Justice Department, a very different Attorney General, uh, and so there are methods of enforcement we didn't have before. The panel is scrutinizing what led to the violence that engulfed the Capitol as supporters of Mr. Trump stormed the building, brutalizing police officers and delaying for hours the official counting of electoral votes to formalize Mr. Biden's victory. Little is known about what the former president was doing as he watched the mayhem unfold or in the days leading up to it. When the former president says he's going to invoke executive privilege, it's got to make you laugh because he doesn't have an executive privilege because he's a former president. I know he thinks he's the president, but he's not. It's up to the current president. And if you read the Supreme Court's decision in U.S. versus Nixon back in 1974, the, the Justice Berger said basically what you're balancing is the public's overwhelming interest in the truth versus cases dealing with national security. Here, you've got the public's overwhelming interest in the truth and national security on the same side because the value of national security is invoked by conducting the investigation into the violent insurrection and attempted coup against the U.S. government. Uh, our committee has been unanimous, really, on all the steps that we've taken. Uh, there's a remarkable degree of uh, commonality in terms of wanting to get to the truth, of being ready to uh, use whatever tools, tactics, techniques uh, we have to to get to the truth. Uh, there is a common acceptance of the fact that no one is beyond the limits uh, of our investigation if they have relevant information about January 6th. And we're not fooling around. We're not going to waste time. Uh, and so you see these subpoenas going out to four key players that, uh, you know, based on what we know today, have very relevant information about the run-up to January 6th. And what happened on that on the day of that bloody insurrection? The committee sent record preservation demands last month to 35 technology companies. Among hundreds of people whose records the committee is seeking to preserve are about a dozen House Republicans, including Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who has threatened to retaliate against any company that complies. On Thursday, Mr. McCarthy again criticized the committee, calling its work more about politics than anything else. You know, I, I haven't reserved any subpoena, but it just goes to show um, they're more. This is more about politics than anything else. There's only two questions that this uh, committee should actually be looked upon. Why was the Capitol left so ill-prepared? And how can we make sure that this never happens again? What will come out of this next phase of the investigation could likely produce the smoking gun that Democrats have long sought. But even with testimony from these key figures, it would still make for an incomplete puzzle up until now. On the same day that the January 6th committee handed down its subpoenas, the Washington Post is reporting that the Biden administration has stepped into the fray and is considering releasing privileged information from the Trump White House as to what the president was doing and who he was speaking to as the rioters ransacked the Capitol. And the stage appears to be set for what could be a legal showdown between the current White House and former President Trump. Today, the White House indicated that it is willing to cooperate with the House committee investigating the Capitol riot on January 6th. That committee is expected to request Donald Trump's records from that day. 
which could help lawmakers find out exactly what Trump and his aides were doing as the violence erupted. This is a potentially huge development. The Biden administration views the January 6th attack as a huge stain on this nation and believes what occurred that day is beyond the scope of executive privilege. Nonetheless, it will overturn decades of precedent that has shielded Trump and other presidents from revealing how they governed. The Post adds that however little regard Biden's White House might have for Trump's, even White Houses of opposing parties generally avoid this kind of thing. No White House wants to potentially undermine its claims to executive privilege or to set up a precedent that its inner workings could one day be disclosed by its successors. We will respond promptly to these questions as they arise uh, and certainly as they come up from Congress. Uh, and certainly we, are, we have been working closely with, uh, with congressional committees and others as they work to get to the bottom of what happened on January 6th, an incredibly dark day in our democracy. The real danger here is is not that we don't know what happened it's that we know what happened and there's no outrage or that the other side simply tries to pass it off as normal behavior uh, that wasn't true in watergate by the way i think richard nixon knew that when his conversations were revealed the gig was up he bought into the basic moral framework here the president has always denied it you're right we already have out in the open uh, outrageous conduct, inciting a violent insurrection, uh, insurrection against the Capitol. There's really no serious debate about that. Denying the results of the election, trying to flip the results in places like Georgia and others. But let's know the details, too. And let's know who on Capitol Hill was involved in it. And let's know if they were. That's fair. But I think you're going to, there's a reason why they're so uh, freaked out about their conduct and their actions being revealed on that terrible day. One of the most significant questions the move could answer, wrote the Post, is the timeline of when House Minority Leader Kevin fucking McCarthy had his infamous phone call with Donald and what it could reveal. If the call to McCarthy came earlier, it would suggest Trump's response was even more delayed. If it came later, it would suggest Trump's callousness about the scenes lasted well into the situation, said the Post. Even if we might not know the full content of these calls, in other words, the timing of them would fill out the picture of Trump's slow response and possibly how much he liked what he was seeing, even as the situation progressively spiraled out of control. We already knew Trump's response was delayed, with plenty of reporting suggesting he was initially approving of what the rioters were doing. Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, a Trump critic, has said Trump was walking around the White House confused about why other people on his team weren't as excited as he was. I've spoken to multiple Republican members of the House who have knowledge of that call, who tell us that after Trump tried to say to Kevin, these are not my people, it's Antifa, Kevin McCarthy said to Trump, no. It's not Antifa. These are your people. And here are the new details. After he said that, Trump said to McCarthy, quote, these, quote, well, Kevin, I guess these people are more upset about the election than you are. To which McCarthy responded, who the F do you think you're talking to? And Congresswoman Herrera Butler says, Trump's comments to Kevin McCarthy speak to his state of mind that day 
and explain why she voted to impeach. This is what she told us, quote, you have to look at what he did, Trump did, during the insurrection to confirm where his mind was at. That line right there demonstrates to me that either he didn't care, which is impeachable, because you cannot allow an attack on your soil, or he wanted it to happen and was okay with it, which makes me so angry. We should never stand for that for any reason under any party flag. I'm trying really hard not to say the F word. In addition, what the fuck did the president talk about with creepy Jim Jordan? The Ohio congressman has been weirdly evasive about the substance of his conversations with the former president on January 6th, at first denying that they even spoke at all. There's some confusion over what you told Brett Baer on Fox News on Tuesday night, so I want to clear it up. First off, yes or no, did you speak with President Trump on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I speak. I, I spoke with the president last week. I speak with the president all the time. I spoke with him on January 6th. I mean, I talk with President Trump all the time. And that's that's I don't think that's unusual. Uh, I would expect members of Congress to talk with the president of the United States when they're trying to get done the things they told the voters in their district to do. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of amazed sometimes that people keep asking this. But of course, I talk to the president all the time. I talked to him, like I said, I talked to him last week. On January 6th, did you speak with him before, during, or after the Capitol was attacked? Uh, I'd have to go. I, 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 I spoke with him that day after, I think after. I don't know if I spoke with him in the morning or not. I, I just don't know. Uh, I'd have to go back. and. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, that when, when those conversations happened, but um, but uh, what I know is I spoke with him all the time. The goal for all of this is to put together a complete picture and timeline of what went on that day. There exist thousands of hours of footage of rioters ransacking the Capitol, and these people, by and large, have been rounded up and brought to justice. Now comes the hard part, untangling the conspiracy. Who was behind January 6th? Who funded January 6th? And how much did the president know? And how much did his proxies know? And what did they do to light the fire? And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is the amazing Katie Fang. For the past five years, Ms. Fang has served as a legal contributor to NBC and MSNBC. Her background as a prosecutor in the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office saw her in charge of complicated first-degree murder cases in the belly of one of the crime capitals of this country. In the age of Trump, she has served as a fierce critic of the lawlessness that has pervaded our own government, and as the COVID pandemic has centered over Florida, she uses her Twitter feed and public profile to hold Governor Ron DeSantis and those who would seek to kill her fellow Floridians to account. She joins me today on Maya Culpa as COVID deaths spike in Florida and Democrats beat back the GOP-engineered California recall. So let's listen now to that conversation. All righty, so Katie, it was reported that a Texas doctor was sued by individuals in Arkansas and Illinois for performing abortions in the state. 
Now, it's the first action taken against a medical practitioner in application of this new ridiculous law. Could the doctor's defense lead to the law ending or do you think he could face actual discipline and monetary fine or maybe even incarceration? So, Michael, that's a great question. And, you know, it's 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 interesting. I think the anti-abortion activists that were promoting SB8 in Texas, they really didn't think this one through. They thought, hey, we did an end run on the idea that we could make it a private cause of action for somebody in like Arkansas or Illinois to sue a doctor who assists in um, performing an abortion in Texas in violation of his brand new law. But now that you actually have two cases that have been filed, right, now the law becomes an immediate challenge on what we call an as-applied basis, right? So there's this constitutional scrutiny you do on statutes. And one of them is a facial attack. You look at it, you say, you know, on the face, the statute is unconstitutional. But the other way to look at it is when you apply the law, it becomes unconstitutional. And now that you actually have these independent causes of action that have been brought by these private plaintiffs, you and I both know that the immediate thing is going to be an injunction that's going to be sought in this case. And the doctor who posted in the Washington Post saying, I did this abortion, he admits he did it to create the immediate challenge legally for this law. So, you know, we look at these kind of crazy people that brought these lawsuits. The guy from Arkansas is a disbarred lawyer who has had all sorts of problems in his history. But to some extent, you got to be grateful to that guy and to the guy in Illinois who have now brought these lawsuits because they've actually fast tracked on the trial court level the ability to attack the sufficiency of this new law in Texas. And so there's going to be a lot of motion practice, but there's going to be a lot of scrutiny as to whether or not some random ass person in some state not in Texas can sue a doctor who is providing a service that is constitutionally protected. I mean, it's going to be a lot faster than us waiting for SCOTUS, who's going to hear this, right, and then not render a decision until June of 2022. Yeah, it is crazy. But you do have to give credit to Dr. Alan Braid. He's the doctor that wrote the op-ed acknowledging that he performed this abortion um, service despite the SB6 law there in Texas. I mean, I give him credit because, and I know this better than most, when you get caught up into this system, first of all, financially, it will destroy you, right? I mean, he has to take on counsel. Litigation, right? That's why you're suing Trump organization to get your legal fees, right? Because they decimated you financially when you were having to pay for your legal fees, right? Well, yeah, I'm not really sure that I should be paying for a billionaire who directs me to go ahead and to file a arbitration proceeding and a case against Stormy Daniels, my former guest, twice, um, so that he could prevent her from going on 60 Minutes to talk about the relationship that they had. But I say that I give him credit because it's really a massive headache. That this man is going to undergo. And, you know, generally doctors, look, my father is a head and neck reconstructive surgeon and otolaryngologist. My brother-in-law is an orthopedist. My uncle, my cousins, you know, come from a family of all doctors and all lawyers. And I can tell you, doctors aren't good with headaches, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, this is not something 
that they're really used to. This is more like lawyers like to get into fights. Doctors like to go in. They like to perform their craft, to do their, their procedure, their surgery, and then make sure that the patient is okay. This guy's really taking on a massive, massive headache. And I hope that the listeners that um, are tuning in right now acknowledge what this man is doing, because you're right. He's fast-tracking what they're expecting the Supreme Court to do. And I myself am very interested to see the outcome. It also, a lot of it depends upon the judge that, you know, that gets assigned this case. Is he going to be somebody that's conservative? Is it going to be somebody that's progressive, somebody in the middle? Because everybody comes to the case with their own personal, you know, um, belief system. And this is really one that is very divided in this country, clearly. The fact that we can have something that may destroy the decision of Roe v. Wade, to me, is something I never thought I would see. So, but, but to your point, Michael, you and I could have a difference of opinion, but there's a law. And the law of the land is Roe v. Wade. So whether or not you're pro-choice or whether or not you're anti-abortion, at the end of the day, we're all obligated to respect that right that has been afforded to women to choose what to do and a right that's been codified in the Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And so why I bring that to your attention is this doctor has literally offered himself up as a sacrificial lamb because he's looking at the potential of having to pay. If you succeed under this new law in Texas as a plaintiff and you sue, you can get $10,000 in damages and your legal fees paid. Right. And then the doctor may have problems with his own license to be able to practice medicine because he is being targeted. Most doctors, if God forbid, they have to deal with litigation. They either do it as expert witnesses, as you know, or they do it when they're being sued for medical malpractice. They are not going to be sued for actually assisting a woman to be able to exercise her right to have an abortion. And so. It's become a critical issue, especially because the Supreme Court has said, yes, we're now going to listen to the challenge to that Mississippi law, right? We're now going to listen to that, and we're going to have oral argument on that. So now all eyes are turned on the Supreme Court, and the reality is, is Amy Coney Barrett going to do what we all suspect she was going to do? Is Brett Kavanaugh going to do what we all expected or suspected him to do? What will John Gorsuch do? Those were the three Trump appointees to the Supreme Court of the United States. What are they going to do? Are they going to vote their conscience or are they going to follow the precedent, which is Roe v. Wade? So, I mean, it, it, it affects me. I have a six-year-old daughter, right? I want to know that my daughter will have the right to choose and to control what happens to her body like I can. And it's terrifying to think that we're, you know, careening into a handmaiden kind of world. And that's not the kind of world that I want for my daughter. So it's really important that our voices be heard on these issues. And there was an amicus brief, Michael, that was filed in that Mississippi case. And it was filed by a couple hundred Olympic athletes, like people that have been the ultimate um, in their in their profession or their sport. And they're, they're women. And they're saying, you know, we're in support of the idea that a woman has the right to choose what to do with their body. And so the amicus brief, these friends of the court briefs that are coming forward, they're powerful. And the reason why they're powerful, they talk about their personal experiences. 
There is a Olympian who is a gold medalist swimmer. She talks about the decision to have an abortion when she was in college. That's a very personal experience to share publicly, but she said it was important enough for her to give a voice to those that need to have the right to choose. And that's the reason why she decided to join that brief. And so I'm, I'm interested, obviously, beyond just as a legal person, I'm interested because I'm a mother and I'm a woman. I want to see what happens. Well, I'm interested because I'm a father of a 25-year-old daughter, and I happen to be a man. And I happen to be a man, and I happen to be, well, now a disbarred lawyer, but I truly believe that Roe v. Wade is and should be the law of the land as it relates to these type of cases. And what I'm finding very interesting, and play this out for a second. So we have Dr. Alan Braid. We have these two numbnuts that decide that they're going to sue. First of all, I have multiple questions. There are now two lawsuits against him. Mm -hmm. Um, Only one person, right, is the one who would ultimately get paid the 10,000 plus the legal fees. So which one, you know, which one supersedes the other? Is it based upon the distance closest to Texas? Is it based upon who filed first? I'm not sure anybody contemplated any of this. I don't know. I don't know because it's one it's one course of conduct. Right. So, as you know, there's one act committed by that doctor to plaintiffs. But at this rate, Michael, this is the absurdity of that law. Right. Why are not one hundred and fifty people suing this doctor in Texas right now or one hundred and fifty thousand people suing this doctor in Texas right now? Right. If you have this private cause of action, it could be anyone anywhere that could be suing this doctor. Right. And and that's what I don't know. Who gets whose case controls is the question that I'm really looking for. And then let's assume, for example, that in the state court that it's bringing or the federal court that it's being brought in, the judge determines that there is no crime committed here, that there is no violation of the law. We know what's going to happen. Right. The plaintiff in the lawsuit is going to appeal it. So it's going to drag on further and further. Now, let's say the appellate court in that specific region turns around and they concur with the with the lower court's decision. Now it's going to go to the Supreme Court anyway. But we're talking about, what, five years, maybe more before this happens. And what happens if hypothetically the Supreme Court ultimately decides that Judge Braid, I'm sorry, that Dr. Braid's um, course of action is violative of this Texas law, right? Then the case is over for him, as far as I see. Uh, so, you know, years away from an ultimate decision here anyway. So the problem now becomes, you know, what are other doctors to do? And that is the situation. And that's the reason why it's created a chilling effect for people. And, and by the way, it's not just the doctors, right? The law as drafted creates a target, a bullseye on the back of anyone who assists. You could drive as an Uber driver, the woman to the clinic, and you could also get sued. I could sit there and say, um, Jane, I believe that I think you should do this abortion. I could get sued because I'm assisting. I mean, that's how absolutely absurd, draconian, and ridiculous this law is which is why the more opportunities to challenge the legality of it, the better. But who is going to be willing to take one for the team? And right now, it's just that doctor who did the op-ed in the Washington Post. He's the only one so far who's been sued, who's willing to do this. And, you know, I certainly hope 
there's a GoFundMe or a crowdfunding that's going on to pay this guy's fees, right? Because he's going to need a lawyer to defend him in this lawsuit. He really is. Yeah. And then I'm also curious as to whether or not the AMA will ultimately sanction him for potentially violating this Texas law. You know, could his malpractice insurance then skyrocket to the point that he wouldn't be capable of affording, right? Let's not forget if he did abortions, obviously it's obstetrics gynecology. That is historically the highest malpractice um, insurance policy that's out there. And I certainly would say that, you know, being now sued for violation will only increase that policy. I mean, this guy's really taken one to the team and he should be acknowledged for it. And I'm, I'm with you on that. If there's some sort of a, of, of a GoFundMe, I mean, this is something that I'd like to see, you know, groups like the ACLU and other put in am- more amicus briefs uh, in order to help to protect this guy and actually to protect all women's right to decide for themselves because it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's a fundamental right. Well, you know, this really speaks to this concept of, and, and this phrase has been discussed on media and, and in print, the idea of this shadow docket that exists at the Supreme Court of the United States, the opportunity for the justices who have lifetime appointments, um, who are the most powerful jurists in the United States, they're issuing these decisions in the dead of night, right? under the cover of darkness, with really not any analysis. Right now, what we've heard was this was a purely procedural decision that was made by the Supreme Court of the United States not to stop this law from going into enactment on September 1st of 2021. And the analysis we heard from the majority was very simple. All they said was the plaintiffs have failed or the petitioners have failed to prove their burden of irreparable harm in the event that this law was to go into effect on September 1st. Are you kidding me? I mean, what kind of bullshit answer is that? I haven't proven that there's not going to be irreparable harm caused to all of these women potentially that are going to have to drive out of the state of Texas to be able to seek the medical treatment that she's entitled to receive under Roe v. Wade. How about all the doctors that cannot perform the medical procedures that they are allowed to do, which is always in compliance with your Hippocratic oath? I mean, there's a myriad of people that are going to have irreparable harm. So I thought it was a bullshit analysis to allow this law to go into enactment by saying, oh, on the face, it's a procedural decision. It's not substantive. That's an easy way of saying we're saving it for, you know, the the knockout punch at some point in time. And so you really have to pray that the Supreme Court gets this one right when it actually makes it to the Supreme Court. Or you're just going to have the backyard or the, you know, back alley abortions that used to take place. You know, I also, I remember in law school, we were discussing Roe v. Wade. I brought up a, a point that the um, professor turned around and said, you know, it's actually an interesting argument on it. Roe v. Wade is not just a decision based upon a woman's right to choose. It's also, as far as I'm concerned, it's also discriminatory in the fact that it discriminates against uh, those who have money and those who don't. If you are poor and you can't afford to go to the state, um, you know, even if it was like in Roe v. Wade, that was uh, basically a 20 minute or 30 minute you know, ride to another state where it's legal. It's, it's unfair and it creates class distinction, right? 
those who have money, if in fact that you want to have a procedure done by a qualified doctor, not like what we used to see years ago, right? You'll fly the person to Switzerland. You can go to Europe. You can go to Canada. You can go anywhere. Why? Because finances is not an issue. And once again, we are now creating this distinction of, you know, your rights are only affected if you're poor, right? And then again, what is that basically? It really hits, for the most part, minorities, um, you know? And- yeah, it's a disproportionate impact on minorities. It's a disproportionate impact on people that don't have the financial means to get themselves out of this particular scenario. Absolutely true. And that's what the professor turned said. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly one way to look at it. Um, what I do, however, like, is that at least we're being, be beginning to discuss things like the loser has to pay legal fees, something we see all the time in the United Kingdom, right? Um, where, you know, the if you want to bring in action, because I believe that so many of these lawsuits that are out there are frivolous in nature, and it's so taxing on the system. That's why when you have a case like I do with the Trump organization, we're just waiting for a yeah. judge's decision. Now, you know, it's several months. Um, it's not a long time to wait because we've become accustomed to waiting many, many months for decisions when, you know, you should really be able to get that decision in a short, you know, in short order. Unfortunately, because the dockets are so overwhelmed with the number of cases that are before it, and many of them are frivolous bullshit type, you know, lawsuits and actions that the lawyers just keep going and going, figuring that they'll get some sort of nuisance value for the case. Um, here, if you lose, you know, you have to pay the, you know, the, the, the victor's um, legal bills. And I, I've always liked that as a, as a concept, whether it's in defamation cases or in any type of case, malpractice cases and so on. But, you know, moving, moving on, let me ask you this, Katie. Later this year, because we're talking a lot about these sort of copycat states and these copycat laws that appear to be coming out. Later this year, the Supreme Court will hear a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade uh, from the state of Mississippi. That's right. How worried are you right now about the future of this law in the face of the Texas law and other challenges to women's reproductive rights? Well, obviously, it doesn't bode well with what we saw just happen with the SB8 law from Texas. So, We just found out yesterday that the Supreme Court will hear the oral arguments on the challenge to the Mississippi law. And, you know, these laws, they're just so absurd, right? They they are moving the goalpost in terms of fetal cardiac activity and, you know, detection of heartbeat. And they don't have exceptions for rape and incest. I mean, it's just this we're going in reverse, right? We're, we're going centuries in reverse in terms of how we look at women and how we view agency and self-determination. And the concern I have is, and, and, and you know this better than anyone, Michael, it is such a quid pro quo world in DC, right? It is such a transactional world. And You and I both know that the offering up of someone like Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh came with strings. And those strings that came with those people as nominees were, I will do what I can do to get the hell rid of Roe v. Wade. I mean, I think it's ignorant, if not naive, to suggest otherwise. 
Um, and I'm worried because somebody's going to have to pay the piper. People are going to come calling. They, they want to get their, they want to get paid up on the idea that they put people on the bench to be able to affect change. You and I both know you're not supposed to have judicial activism, right? A judicially active or an activist judge is a big no-no. We all know the Federalist Society screams and moans and complains about the idea of putting somebody on the bench that's going to be an activist judge because they're going to change things because they want it to look like what they want it to be. But isn't that exactly what the GOP does when they stack the benches? When they put all of these federal district court judges in their lifetime appointments, all of these judges on the circuit courts of appeal federally. And now we have, you know, like I said, three appointees by Trump, by McConnell, and not even Trump, right? And not I mean, by, really I'm McConnell sorry, Katie, they're not by McConnell either. It's by, I was sitting in Trump's office, and I, you know, a lot of my listeners are like, oh, let her speak, let her speak. I, this is important to understand. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in Trump's office when he became the the president elect and he received a multiple page document from I think it was the Heritage um, Foundation with an entire list of, you know, of people to be considered, not just for the Supreme Court, but as you rightly stated, for all the federal courts. And half of them don't have the qualifications to wash your fucking car. And it's funny. I mean, you start to see, well, how many you saw on television, they were saying, you know, to a bunch of the judges who here has ever tried a case and three of them never tried. And none of them can raise their hands. And and how many of you have ever conducted a deposition? What's known as an EBT, an examination before trial. And one of them turned around and said that he had conducted a deposition when, in fact, he did not. He was second seating it. He sat at a deposition. And these are the people that we're going to trust our federal courts. First of all, I am completely opposed to any judge or anyone, for that matter, having a lifetime appointment. I don't understand it. It, it makes no sense to me. You want give them 20 years on the bench. Give them 24 years on the bench. I don't care. But nobody should have the right to sit there and die in in their job, regardless of whether or not their mental faculties give them the the, um, ability to do their job. And now you're waiting for them to make a determination whether they want to remain on the bench or not. I mean, this is just absolute lunacy. And half of these federal court judges that are out there, they're, they're not qualified. It should be based upon qualifications, not whose ass you can kiss, you know, in order to get yourself on the list, which makes me furious when judges like mine, Judge Pauly, turned around and said, you know, all of your actions were predicated on, you know, on greed and power. Really, my friend, how do you think you became a judge? How many asses do you think you had to kiss in order to be considered to be nominated to the Southern District of the court? And it's all of them. It's not that they're like Judge Learned Hand, who writes the most beautiful opinions known to mankind, right? Um, these aren't scholars. Now, I'm not saying Judge Pauly wasn't a bright man. He is a bright man. You know, Duke undergrad, Duke law school. But that doesn't make you, in Yiddish, they call him a Talmud Chacham, meaning, you know, like a genius amongst geniuses, right? So maybe he was qualified. I don't know. You know, I would... Because of the way my case went, I would say he was biased beyond 
belief, but the statements that they make about greed and power, I think they're looking at themselves in the mirror when they end up talking to these people that they're sentencing. You know, but that's that's you know neither here. Now, one of the things that, of course, we know is that um, Supreme Court judges don't always go in the direction that you think they're going to go. They're not bound. Right. They're not bound by anything. But somebody like Amy Cohn Barrett, who has a history of one specific direction in terms of an issue, you could bet your bottom dollar that she's going to be voting or she's going to be uh, deciding in that direction. And that's very scary because, you know, we saw uh, Trump was angry at, you know, many of these Supreme Court judges that he believes owe him because that's Trump. If he puts you on the bench, you owe him when they permitted his taxes to be released to Cy Vance's office. But they did that anyway. Yeah. So they did uphold their judicial responsibility. But who knows, this topic of Roe v. Wade far surpasses Donald Trump's tax returns. Oh, yeah. No, without a doubt. But I think to your point, though, Michael, that is why everybody needs to get off their ass and vote. Because what people fail to see is there's this whole causal link between how we ended up with the people we have on the Supreme Court, the federal courts, or even our state court system, right? You have to vote people into office that are going to have the ability to make these kinds of decisions. If you didn't have a Mitch McConnell, if you didn't have a Donald Trump, if you didn't have people in those positions that can control what happens, then you wouldn't have those ultimate results. It's a total cause and effect analysis. So get off your ass and vote. Get out there and vote. Vote people into office. Vote your conscience. Vote those people into office that are going to do the right thing, that are going to be respectful about you and your rights and your independence and your ability to decide what is good for you and your family. That's what you have to do. But this complacency of, I'm going to sit back and just watch the world burn because I'm either exhausted, right? There's a fatigue. We all have it. I think there's a lot of people that naively thought that on January 6th, right, that we were all going to turn around breathe a sigh of relief and enter this land of euphoric kind of bliss for the next four years. Clearly that hasn't happened. And so I think people need to realize we're all exhausted and we all have this fatigue about feeling like we're just being attacked all the time. But that's exactly when we need to galvanize and mobilize and get our asses off, off the couch and out there and to have a voice, which is why I'm disappointed that I don't see more from this DOJ. I'm disappointed that I don't see more from Merrick Garland. Um, I get it. Merrick Garland is not going to be out there like banging on a pot in the middle of D.C. screaming about the injustices. But shit, he's the AG. Why not? Let's do something. Why not? He That's should be. Why not be somebody who's saying this is so damn wrong? I mean, it's not just this decision with reproductive rights. It's the E. Jean Carroll decision. It was a horrible decision for the DOJ to embrace the prior DOJ position on saying that the DOJ should be substituted in for Donald Trump. I mean, it's, it's these types of things that makes me legit angry that Merrick Garland isn't being more of the hero we need him to be. I respect the idea that we want to go away from the bill bars of the world, from the politicization of the DOJ. I understand that. But shit, is there ever a time that we need a crackdown on 
what happened on January 6th with insurrection, that we don't need help to protect our reproductive rights, that we don't need help to protect our voting rights. I mean, we're under attack still, still are under attack, and we need as much help as we can. And why not have the Biden DOJ give us the help from the legal perspective that you and I both know is necessary? And Merrick Garland was supposed to be that man. He was supposed to be the man that was going to set this shit straight. We all know that Bill Barr was a fucking asshole, that he was that he everything that he did was was in on in on the service of Donald J. Trump, including the unconstitutional remand of me back to prison because I wouldn't waive my First Amendment right to print my book disloyal. There should be investigations into everything, whether it's mine or not, whether it's voting rights, reproductive rights, whether it's any, the January 6th insurrection and everything thereafter. Whatever it was that Bill Barr and Donald Trump were up to, all right, there's absolutely no reason why we don't have at least a dozen, at least a dozen special counsels already appointed doing investigations because the American people, it's not that we're that we deserve the truth in terms of what was happening, that Donald Trump tried a coup attempt against our democracy. We're entitled to it. It's our rights as Americans. It's our right it is to our have right. that. Exactly. America Garland and Lisa Monaco and the DOJ, they need to step up or get the fuck out. That's what I say on the show all the time. And listen, to, to, to what happened to you, and, and I want to bring this up, is because It is the clearest example of the weaponization of what is supposed to be a completely independent arm, right? Everybody knows that it's supposed to be an independent application of justice. And for them to weaponize the system to punish you for basically finding your way, right, is wrong. It's you. It's other people. We all know that Trump used the, the bar DOJ to target people he didn't like. That is fucking illegal. That is not just a no-no. It's fucking illegal. And there are people who facilitated it that still haven't been arrested, that still haven't been investigated. Just the acts alone of Donald Trump trying to um, reverse the outcome in Georgia of the election. I mean, that takes cojones, right? That takes balls. And if you and I had this conversation and I told you it was some third world country, you'd be like, of course, because it's some third world country with a dictatorship who's running around strong arming people to get the results that he or she wants. It is a complete disregard of our laws. And with my specific case, as with others, it didn't start with Bill Barr. Right. Or it, it started with Donald, went down to Bill Barr, and then it fell it like shit rolling down a hill all the way down to the prosecutors in my case, all the way down to them, all the way down to the Department of Corrections that lured me down to 500 Pearl Street, knowing that I was never coming back out. You know, a reporter turned around and called me and said that a week prior to the unconstitutional remand that they had heard people say, don't worry about Cohen. He's going back to prison. I mean, this whole thing and how this isn't an open investigation, I don't know, because, look, forget about the fact that it happened to me. Right. I can't forget it. Most people will because it doesn't affect them. It does, because if you attract the ire of a immoral human being who be like Donald Trump, who becomes president, you know, you may have to leave the country. 
as I as as I might if this crazy man ends up coming back into power, which I can assure you is not going to happen. But let me just move on for a second here, Kate. A recent video of my next, you know, person I despise, uh, fucking Ron DeSantis, at his press conference, shows a man using DeSantis's office as a platform to spout disinformation about the COVID vaccine, claiming that it changes one's RNA. All right. I mean, this is just crazy. My question to you is, how is this not a crime? Obviously, it's not against the law to be stupid, right? But gross negligence is a crime. But And it's beyond the realm of possibility that DeSantis does not know what he is doing is killing Floridians and at an alarmingly high rate. Could there be any accountability for him from the Justice Department? And I'm not talking about accountability from his constituents and the voters voting his fucking dumbass out of office. I'm talking about accountability from the Justice Department because the information he's spewing is killing people. Yeah, so I I know that you know I am a Florida resident. Uh, I certainly did not vote for Ron Death Santis, as we uh, not affectionately call him down here. I am in Miami, Florida. I am in Miami-Dade County. And, you know, our COVID rates have always been, if not the highest and the second highest in the state. I have a six-year-old daughter who is in public school. I am battling the, the, I call it the DeSantis mask mandate issues even right now because I don't want my kid to die. Um, It is infuriating as a civilian, as a resident, as a lawyer to see someone. And, you know, Michael, he's not a dumb guy. The guy is a Ivy League educated man. This is not somebody who, like, fell off the turnip truck yesterday. What he's doing, though, is he's he took a page out of the playbook of Donald Trump, right? Let's foment this misinformation party amongst everyone so that they believe this stupidity. The irony is he's killing off his voting base. So I do think the ultimate accountability is going to be him getting voted out of office because, frankly, anybody's going to vote for him who believes him is going to end up dead from the coronavirus. But he has this ability to say, listen, I may be the governor. I may be having a more public platform than Joe Citizen, but I am allowing this information to be imparted. I believe in this information. I believe in the data. I believe in this science. And I'm allowed to say it. And that's going to insulate him from criminal prosecution for gross negligence. It's going to insulate him from a lawsuit. It just is. Because he gets to, as a public official, he gets to say that misinformation, as frustrating as it is. I mean, look at what Donald Trump did. Everything out of his mouth within reason was a lie. He was the president of the United States, right? Where is his accountability coming from, though? His private business affairs, right? I mean, there's these things that are coming back, and that's where his accountability is going to be. But for somebody like DeSantis, he is allowing people to use a very public platform, which is a complete... Uh, you know, disservice to his job and his title and his position, but it's not illegal. Yeah, sad, sad, sadly, because look, not only are my parents down there in Florida, but my son is down there in Miami, you know, finishing, finishing up university in Miami. And I can honestly tell you that I'm petrified. I have, you know, many friends that live down there and I'm petrified for them. And, you know, um, my father-in-law, mother-in-law down there, 
know, he got COVID. He ended up in the hospital. Um, very, very, you know, severe COVID. It's it's no joke. And as you're right, Ron DeSantis, I believe that there has to be a creative way within which to hold him responsible because, you know, as a public official, I don't believe that you have the ability to promote disinformation, which is what it's proven to be. You know, um, the fact that hydroxychloroquine, baby, come on, let's get some hydroxychloroquine. Come on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Trump should take hydroxychloroquine every day, you know, instead of his bare aspirin and his, um, you know, and his Propecia. Did you ever think, did you ever think though, that medicine would be, a politicized issue. Did you ever think that medicine and science would end up being a politicized issue? And I'm not talking medicine, about the medicine. Earth is, yes. The Earth is so medicine. Yes. But, um, but, uh, but to this point, no, where it's literally but a not, life but or sci- death analysis. No, but science, really? but science, no, you know, the reason, you know, politicized is, you know, I remember going back to when, you know, uh, AIDS was in the eighties was, was there and it became obviously a big politicized, uh, thing. And there was all sorts of, people making allegations that this medication would help to stave off the effects and so on. So we've seen this before, but not the science. And it's just, look, you know, the funny thing about it, too, is that Trump, who believes he's entitled to the Nobel Peace Prize for Operation Warp Speed. I mean, first of all, yeah, let me let me just go back a second. Let me just explain. Wait, I thought that was Jared Kushner because he created peace in the Middle East. No, no, well, that Jared's role? no, no. Jared is actually up, interestingly enough, for a Nobel Peace Prize, which got to piss Trump off something fierce. But Trump believes that he created the vaccination through his Operation Warp Speed. And because he has saved many millions of lives in this country, he's entitled to the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, what I find the funniest about Trump is everybody says, you know, he behaves like a third grader, you know, with the ability to communicate with like a third grade level education. Just think about all of his names. Right. You have Operation Warp Speed. It's like right out of fucking Star Trek or one of these silly, you know, Saturday um, cartoons. And then he also has Space Force. I mean, you know, and who's who's operating the spaceship? Space Ghost? He's such a fucking moron. And yet 74 million people, whether you held your nose and voted for him or you voted for him openly like that, shame on you. The guy is the guy's not qualified to be the president of his own Trump organization, let alone president of this country. But let me just move forward because time is really fleeing with us. With the continued gerrymandering of state legislatures in Texas and other red states, Republican supermajorities are pushing through these extreme and authoritarian bills that appeal to an emboldened uh, MAGA base. What remedies do Democrats have to fight back against the likes of Ron DeSantis and worse than him, Greg's stupid asshole Abbott? Exactly what I said a few months ago, a few minutes ago. You just have to get out and you have to vote. You have to not presume that all is lost. You have to sit there and make sure that your voice is heard. And what, But it's not just you. It has to be a concerted effort. It has to be people helping you get to those polls when you have those horrible poll taxes, right? Things like that. You have to be able to help each other. I look at Georgia as the bellwether example of how we can make things change. And I tell that to all of my local Florida Democrats who, and even independents, when I'm like, look, if Georgia can do it, Florida can do it. If Florida can do it, then Texas can do it, right? We can make it happen. 
But let's be honest, Stacey Abrams laid the footprint in Georgia a long time ago. It was not overnight. I find there to be a level of complacency already. It's like Biden wins the White House and that's supposed to be okay for the next four years. No, there is a lot of stuff that's going on with the GOP openly and secretly, right in your backyard that you don't even know is happening. Things like the ban on critical race theory in schools. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's happening. People are not paying attention. Again, Maybe it's the fatigue we have over this battle over the last four years, right? With how many impeachments, right? Maybe we're all just too tired to care, but you have to care. Because if not, I am nervous about 2024. How could you not be? I have to be nervous because those polls are absurd. The number of people who do not believe an insurrection occurred on January 6th is mind-boggling to me. And they can't be stupid. I mean, yes, there are some of them that are stupid, but it's disturbing to me that there's so many people that I know that voted for Trump, right? And they may believe that that was an insurrection, but they'll take Trump back. And I'm so disappointed. And their analysis always is, well, did you ever see my 401k do so well? Have you ever seen my finances do so well? Um, That's not the issue, right? Have you ever seen the country in such a state of misery than it was during those four years with Donald Trump. We have to make people care. And if what's happening now is not enough, if the gerrymandering that's happening is not enough, then what will be? What is? What's going to make you care enough to be able to get out and do the right thing? Yeah, well, many of the, not just there in Florida, but here in New York, I speak to a lot of folks and they always say the same sort of thing. And it bothers me. I I talk about this so often on this podcast with people. Their vote for Donald Trump was not predicated on his intelligence. It wasn't predicated on his religious convictions. It was all predicated on the almighty dollar. My 401k is up. Even this one correctional officer that, you know, was there at Otisville, you know, um, supervising me, so to speak. We would sit sometimes in his office and I I have to be honest with you, you know, he was in the um, armed service and he fought uh, I think in uh, he did time um, down over in Iraq and so on. And I said to him, I need you to explain something to me. You seem to be a big Trump supporter because he was brutal to me mm. at times. A big Trump supporter. And I said, you understand that I obviously know him better than you. And I'm telling you legitimately that he's a fucking ass clown under mm. in no uncertain terms. You served in our military. You put your life on the line for this country. And for that, I'll never disrespect you. However, however, you seem to be like this big Trump supporter. Why? Right. He's already denigrated generals. He said that his gut knows more than all of his generals. He knows more about war than everybody, including the generals. I said, how could you, being a military guy who has respect for the ranks, how could you respect, how could you respect this man? And he gave me the same stupid ass answer. My 401k is up like 28%. And he would start to talk to me about that. And I said, do you understand that your 401k isn't going to mean shit to you when the price of a loaf of bread is going to be, you know, 10 bucks because of all the bullshit that's going on? I said, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Now, there are another group of people, some who I happen to know here, that we saw this um, report in the news that the billionaire class 
made 62% more money under the Trump administration, which is, of course, why they're all so anti-Joe Biden, right? How many fucking Lamborghinis and airplanes and helicopters and homes do you need to have? Can't you go stay at a five-star hotel? I mean, can't you fly on, you know, first class? I mean, you know, you have to have three helicopters, five airplanes, 20 homes. I mean, you know, you have to have, um, you know, art worth $150 million and you're willing to jeopardize this country. You know, if you look at history, it kind of reminds you a lot of during the time of like the Romanoffs, right? There's a certain point in time where the country cannot sustain this economic division, you know, between these two classes. It, that is the, the some of the most powerful collateral damage we have from the last four years is the chasm between the haves and the have nots got so much deeper and so much more profoundly hard. And I think that is why you did see people that are like, we can't take it anymore. We need better leadership. We need someone else that's going to be in office. But it's not like you can just flip the switch and the next day it's better. Look at all of the stuff that's still occurring thereafter. And I think if people will open their ears and they'll actually listen to people like you, to General Milley, like if you listen to the people that were in the room, right, that are not just, you know, third party hearsay, right, people, people who were in the room and saw what was happening and what was the motivation behind the decisions that were made. Look, we're in recession, right? Era metrics right now because of the coronavirus, among other things. And we ended up so much badly in where we are because of the coronavirus, because of the Trump administration. I mean, there's, like I said, there's this cause and effect that's happening. And I think that people think that it's just what's right behind them or right in front of them. And they have to go farther back. They just have to. And in order to move forward even more, you have to look back and say, we can't do that same thing. We can't repeat what we did. Before. You know, something that I talked about ad nauseum in my book, Disloyal, I was giving the reader an opportunity to be in the room, to be involved in various different scenarios that Trump had placed me in. Um, and I was a willing participant in, you know, many of them. And it was really the goal was to open up the reader's eyes, to turn around and to say, this is exactly what happens when you elect a narcissistic sociopath who does not want to be president of the United States of America. He wants to be a dictator, an autocrat. He wants to be an oligarch. He wants to be Vladimir Putin so badly. He wants to be Kim Jong-un. When he would watch in the crowd with clapping and screaming and yelling for Kim Jong-un because he ate, you know, a sandwich and, you know, and it was just the greatest sandwich eaten of all time. And these people are screaming and yelling and clapping so hard that their hands are breaking, right? That's what Trump wanted when he saw the military parade for Kim Jong-un's birthday. He wanted the same in Washington, regardless of the fact it was be like $15 million to host Donald Trump a parade in like the first few months of his presidency. For what? For what? What is this parade for other than his insatiable ego? And it's all ego. And what he wants is to be the president, but he doesn't want to do the work, which is the biggest problem. He never has a plan. Now, look, 
things that Donald Trump has become incredibly proficient at over the course of at least my you know tenure with him and and others who know him even longer than the 15 plus years that I do. One of the things with Trump is he's a popularist. So he will say things that all of us, Republican, Democrat, Independent, all agree. Our immigration, our immigration is fucked up. We need an overhaul and a change. I agree. You probably agree. And probably every listener out there agrees that the system needs change. But would you ever agree to taking children away from mothers and fathers, putting them in cages, separating them, sending the parents back and leaving 14, 1500 children here never to see their parents again? I don't think so. Right. So the problem is Trump does never he never has a plan. It's not thought out. It's merely do we need border walls in case that they have fallen down? The answer to that is yes, we need border walls. However, right, he never came up with a plan. I'm the best builder. I'm the best. I, I'm known for my building. I'm going to put it. I saw it was a beautiful wall. And Mexico's going to pay for it. Well, Mexico didn't pay for it because he lies the way that you and I breathe. He can't help himself. He is a habitual liar. And he just says things that everybody will agree with, but there's no plan because that's outside of his ability because of his ADHD. You know, so as we're just moving forward, because like I said, it's time is fleeing. In light of Gavin Newsom's victory in the California recall election, some GOP members have begun to reassess their marriage with Trumpism and the MAGA agenda, seeing it more as a liability to them rather than a pathway to power. What's your feeling on his victory and what it bodes for the midterm elections as well as for 2024? Do you see a larger movement away from Trump in the coming months? Yeah, I, I, I think Larry Elder wasn't really right a challenger to Gavin Newsom. I, I think that Gavin Newsom could have had maybe a little bit more of, you know, sweat on his brow, getting nervous if it had been somebody else. I think that we have to remain vigilant because the, you know, Madison Hawthorns, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, the, you know, the, the Jim Jordans of the world, there are people that are the acolytes, the devotees, right, of the Trump concepts, maybe, maybe not Trump himself, but the lasting vestiges of his kind of Trumpism is what they're paying homage to. And it still appeals to so many people, again, as evidenced by the fact that people think that January 6th was not an insurrection, that it was some type of setup. People think it was a setup, that they showed up there. Um, you know, the fact that people think it was okay, that's the part that we need to be worried about. So Gavin Newsom is in a little bit of a bubble in that I think that he got the benefit of having better results because of his COVID measures. I don't think it was necessarily a referendum on the Democrats versus the Republicans out there, because like I said, I don't think Larry Elder was necessarily the guy that was going to give him a run for his money, but it's those other people that have all of these followers, and you and I see them all the time on social media, right? On Twitter, that Marjorie Taylor Green shit show ad she did um, with the gun and blowing up the car and all this other stuff. 
What is that? She is like, some. Fine. She is such Sign a fucking up. moron. I mean, I, honestly, you know. These are people that you and I both know if we saw them on the street and they didn't have their titles or their, you know, um, elected positions. We'd be like, you're a moron. And you just keep on going by. But scarily, somebody elected these people. It, it is. Someone it is did. Scary. Someone took the time to go to vote for them. It is so scary. And what's even scarier, which you alluded to prior, are the lies that revolved around the January 6th insurrection. And like you, it fucking infuriates me when people tell me it was not an insurrection. And then you listen to our representatives. These are elected officials. And if they're listening, which some of them do, it is your obligation to work for the people that uh, that you know are your you know are your uh, constituents. It was a tourist visit, Michael. Right. It was a regular to, tourist visit, it's, and it's not was. just your specific constituents. Your goal is supposed to do what's right for the United States of America. Now, I'm willing to sit there and debate any one of them, from the Jim the jerk off Jordan all the way to the Matt the pedophile gets and all the way down the entire line. It was not peaceful. All right. It was not like any other average normal day. All right. It just was not you. I I worked in the Capitol. I worked for Congressman Joe Moakley of Massachusetts in 86 and 87, or is it 87 and 88? um, You know, when I was in Washington, D.C. in college. And I can tell you, I never saw people attack the Capitol. I never saw people go into the Capitol and create the damage that they did, break into offices like Nancy Pelosi's and steal computers or sit there inside chamber with their feet up on the desk. I've been in that chamber. How about them like smearing people, smearing feces in the United States Capitol? That didn't happen during a tourist visit, did it? Rest assured, it did not. And then to go ahead and to continue the, the lie that it was not an insurrection and have this ridiculous J6 rally that they had the other day. And if you notice, how much money do you think the American taxpayer had to pay for all of these service and, and the security and the officers and God bless each and every one of them for putting their ass on the line for us and for our democracy? They're entitled to their overtime, their pay. There's no amount that we can actually pay them you know, for their service. However, it ended up being like 300 people. And as I said, was in the, total it was a waste cost. with the yeah. fences up and down. I say hello to more people when I walk up Madison through the park on a daily basis than showed up to this stupid J6 rally. And I think personally that that J6 rally, I think it is a great indicator of what's going to happen in the midterms. And I believe that it is just the beginning of the decline of you know the power, the power hold that Donald Trump has uh, on the Republican Party. I really do believe that. Well, I'm just going to add just for two seconds. I think what's what what is good about what you're saying and what we've seen actual visual visible evidence of people like Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Lindell, people who have been promoting the great lie, the big lie, now having some accountability for their lies, right? They're having fines. They're having their bar licenses at risk, right? These are the things that affect outcomes. If you, if you disincentivize someone 
from being the mouthpiece or the vehicle to be able to promote something that is notably and understandably uh, untrue or false or a lie, I think that you start to eliminate the ways that these lies can be perpetrated. I think you start cutting off the ability for voters to have stuff that they can believe in because it's not true and it's proven. But Katie, one of the biggest problems is there's not the accountability that we are all looking for. Let's just use Matt Gates as an example. The guy tried to interfere in my testimony before the House Oversight Committee. Not only, and people may say, well, that's your opinion. No, the fucking asshole acknowledged it. And by text message to me, you know, that, you know, he didn't mean it the way that it came out, but I was angry at I you and attorney against Trump. What accountability has Matt Gates? been held to regarding that obstruction of justice? The answer is zero. He's being held accountable for his behavior, for his, you know, for his, um, you know, uh, underage sex trafficking and so on, but not for, not for this. That's obstruction of justice simply because I went in, in order to testify because I was called to testify by Congress. I didn't wake up and say, Hey, can I come in to Congress and uh, say, you know, I have nothing else to do on this month. Mr. Cohen goes to Washington. Exactly. But they need to be held accountable. And that's, again, where Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco and the DOJ, they really do need to step up. But, you know, Katie, as I said. Well, when Matt Matt Gates gets indicted, you can invite me back and we'll walk through his indictment together. No, we're going to go to the we're going to go to the hearing together. How's that? Let's go. Let's go to the arraignment together. I'll meet you at the arraignment. We can go to the arraignment. Exactly. So, look, uh, you know, as the hour (laughs) is coming to an end. I have one last question for you. Um, You know, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, has really caused collective gasps across Washington for what it's revealing about Trump's declining mental state during and after the January 6th insurrection and the lengths that he went to overturn the election and foment a coup. Does it bother you at all that none of this information was presented at impeachment hearings when Democrats and Republicans were in a position to do something about Trump, meaning to remove him uh, from public life forever? Because, again, what brought on this question is the fact that we were just talking about when I went to testify. Right here, they held impeachment hearing and the second impeachment hearing and all of these various hearings. Representative Schiff and then Jerry Nadler and then, you know, I mean, just a half a dozen of these. But nobody came out and nobody provided this information. And that pisses me off. Yeah. As a lawyer, especially as a trial lawyer, I believe in the power of evidence. Right. And I know it ultimately has to be a decision that's made by the jury or by a judge, depending upon who is the ultimate arbiter of the facts. But the more evidence, the better. And if there was an opportunity to be able to present And it wasn't just to Congress or to the Senate, right? It's to the world. It was, you know, trial is theater. And we, and it was incumbent upon them to show the world how absolutely crazy Donald Trump was slash is. And I think that there were at least two opportunities to do so where they could have cut the legs out from underneath him to put him in a place where he was either you know, unable to run for office again or or hold office again. It it never happens. But I will say in fairness, though, Michael, part of it is because you had senators that were not going to vote to convict him. 
right? And the reason you have those senators is because nobody challenged them. It's because they got this, you know, idea that they could sit there and completely encourage this toddler man child, which is Donald Trump. And they real they felt like they were tying their future success to him being able to continue in the party. And maybe that's coming back to bite them in the ass now. And maybe there's a day of reckoning for them. And maybe they will have to atone for their sins later on, or maybe even sooner than they expect. I can, I can promise you that there will be a day of atonement for Trump, not because of our DOJ, sadly enough, not because of the Southern District of New York that ended up dropping the case against Trump, for which that they ended up getting me to plead guilty to. But thank God for Cy Vance. Thank God for Tish James that have pushed this case right to the brink, fought all the way to the Supreme Court to get certain information and more. And that day of atonement is coming. And that's a promise to you. It's a promise to all my listeners. And it's a promise to the world. And anything, every time I've been called, I have willingly provided them, not just with information, but also with documentary evidence. So that way, you know, there is no refuting my credibility as Donald Trump liked to do. But Katie, I do want to thank you for your time, for your insight, uh, for your your thoughts, opinions. It's um, it's a scary time for all of us. I'm an optimist. I've always been an optimist. And I think you've been through hell and back, right? And I think that you know that there are things that keep us going. And part of that is in my belief that we collectively have more power and strength in numbers, and we're here for each other, and we're going to do the right thing for us and for our families, and we're going to make it a better place. We're making it a better America for everyone. We'll get there. It's just some of us are going to have to run the gauntlet a little bit more than others. Yep. That's and I'm going to ask you to join me as well on that on that journey because uh, I'm a little bit beaten up. So. I need yeah. I need strength from people like yourself. And thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Katie. Anytime. And now for today's mea culpa. The subpoenas handed down by the January 6th committee represent a massive shot into the heart of former President Trump's inner circle. It's also just the beginning. The House Select Committee is looking broadly at Trump's inner circle and knows where there is smoke, there's likely a whole shitload of fire. It's a sign that the congressional investigation is going beyond what the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th to examine the role Trump's top allies played in encouraging the insurrection and their broader efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Well, thank fucking God. The people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are lawless fucking criminals, rioters, and thugs. But they were also pawns of a larger conspiracy. Most of those present at the Capitol that day fall into the camp of red state MAGA faithfuls. These aren't the vanguard of the revolution, but largely undereducated, brainwashed, blue-collar folks who were tired and angry. After years of digital conversion, they were willing to do just about anything Trump and his proxies ordered. It does not absolve them of responsibility, but it does beg the question of who it is that was behind the curtain, who is telling them what to do, and why. The Congressional Committee's focus contains more political risks than a narrow probe targeted at people caught on camera storming the Capitol or attacking police officers. 
but a probe targeting those individuals exclusively would forego even an attempt at accountability for the elected officials who promoted a false narrative about a stolen election and called on Trump supporters to descend on Washington, D.C. in mass on that day, Biden's election was being certified. If the investigation doesn't go there, we will have whitewashed one of the darkest days in this nation's history. Well, let's not stop now. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa. Nothing but the truth. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more, all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. This is my mayor. Oh, baby, don't lie for me. If I tell you my story, don't cry.